In this episode of Space Junk, we'll be joining David Newell, Chief Engineer at Ball Aerospace. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Thanks for joining me, David. I'm going to go ahead and have you introduce yourself a little bit um, and the company you work at, what your specialty is, or what your title is more specific. You can go ahead and start with that, please. Yeah, my name is David Nolo. I'm a chief engineer at Ball Aerospace in Boulder, Colorado, and have worked uh, a number of flight programs over the years, both at uh, Ball Aerospace and at JPL. Okay, you, you so you worked at JPL. That's pretty cool. Yep. Was that down in, in California, Southern California? Yeah, that was in Pasadena, and I, at, uh, one of the programs that I worked there was a uh, joint Japanese-U.S. program uh, called Adios 2 that JPL was building the Siemens instrument for. And so I worked with the, was the interface, the technical interface to the Japanese on that instrument also. That's, that's really cool. So when you, when you say chief engineer, what, what, is, what does that mean? What do you do, you know? So as uh, chief engineer, um, uh, essentially the a way that Ball organizes programs. There's a program manager that is primarily responsible for the constant schedule and oversees technical, and a, and a chief engineer that is primarily responsible for the technical side of the program. And so, chief engineers are responsible, really have ownership of delivering a product that meets the technical performance specified by the customer. Okay. That's that's a mouthful. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff you got to do. Yep. Have you have you enjoyed your position as chief engineer? Oh, absolutely. How, how long have you been one of those? Um. So, let's see. The first chief engineer role I had was uh, well, I had a, a an IPT lead role, which is kind of a chief engineer for a small piece for one subsystem. I did that in uh, 1997, and I became the chief engineer for an entire instrument in uh, 2000. Okay, yeah, is that the most so, recent program you've been working on, or is there is there another one that you've been? Uh, no, so that that was uh, three programs ago. Okay, so it's it's been a while. <laughs> yep. What's what's the most recent program that you're working on right now? If you if you're able to talk about it. Most recent program I've been working on is a weather program for the Air Force. Okay. Um, and so that's WSFM. Prior to that, I worked the GMI program. The uh, so it's a global pre precipitation mission. Is the NASA mission, and we were building a microwave uh, imager for that mission. Okay. So let's. I want to focus a little bit more on the uh, the last NASA mission you did with the, the precipitation. What was it again? The Global Precipitation Mission GPM. Okay. What what exactly did that was that mission designed for? So it's a it's a weather mission, and essentially it's taking uh, the the it, it's generating very similar. Uh, Plots like you see of uh, rainfall that you see on the nightly news, uh -huh. the radar plots that you see 
but the radars can't take data out over the ocean. And so the, the instrument is uh, primarily designed to take worldwide rainfall measurements, but focused on getting the data over the ocean where it's uh, diff- you know where you can't set up ground yeah. radars to get that information. Yeah, that's cool. Were you were you involved in that launch campaign as well, or just the uh, the actual program itself? So that was the that that was the most recent launch campaign that I was involved with was the GMI. Okay. Uh, instrument. Now, where did you end up launching GMI from? So that was uh, launched out of uh, Tanegashima, Japan. So it was a um, it was a joint program with the Japanese, where they provided the launch vehicle for the for the program. Okay, and you you went over to Japan with the company and, and worked it over there for the time being. That is correct. So we were we were directly supporting the NASA team. So NASA was the spacecraft lead, and we were directly supporting NASA. And it was in, in supporting that role that we uh, went to Japan. So what was what was that experience like? You know, obviously, it was this the first time you've been to Japan, or have you been previously? So I've been to Japan, as I said, when I worked at JPL, I was the technical interface lead. Uh, they in the, on on the GP on the Adios two mission at JPL, Japan was building the spacecraft, and JPL was providing an instrument. So we had to work all of the interfaces, um, and so I've been to Japan. Uh, five half a dozen times. Oh wow! Uh, working interfaces on the Audios two programs in the early nineties. Okay. Um, so I've been there. So I had been there before, but it been it been a long time. <laughs> has, has every experience <laughs> well, long enough for me to forget the, the very little bit of Japanese that I've learned? <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna. Sure. I was gonna ask that question. Have you over the you know period of years that you've done this? Have you picked up on any Japanese or practiced it? So I I uh, took six months of Japanese when I was at JPL when I was in that role. Okay. Um, so that's. I mean, it was you know two. I think it was two nights a week. They they had like a class that you could do two nights a week for six months that I did while I was in that role. So. That's enough that I could at the time that I could do very limited communication, you know, just <laughs> sentences and where where is this and where is that and thank you and yeah. Um, so that's that's as much as I have gotten done. Okay, well, I mean, at least you got something. I mean, it's better than nothing, to be honest. Yep. So, what was every experience going over to Japan? Was it different, or were they all kind of similar? Or what What would you What stood out to you? So that it, 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 you know, Japan has a very uh, so. I guess there's the there's the um, work experiences, and then there's the um, kind of social yeah, yeah. or just the general public being in Japan experiences. And so, uh, from a work experience, uh, the the Japanese, all, all of the Japanese companies and organizations are very formal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it, one of the things that I learned was that you really needed to learn and understand the, uh, the cultures mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the, uh, 
kind of the structured uh, expectations that they have if you want to effectively get things done. Yeah. Um, so that you, I mean, when you walk into a room and you sit down in a conference room, it's expected that the most senior person who's going to be making the decision sits at one end of the conference room and you kind of work your way down in seniority from one end to the other. Uh-huh. In America, when you walk into a conference room, you just sit down wherever you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. But but they, when when you're sitting and you're talking, they they will sit the most senior person at the end of the table, and so the two people at the end of the table are the ones that are expected to be making the decisions. And mm-hmm. So, I mean, that you know, there's just a lot of things like that in decision making and in showing respect to the to the appropriate levels of seniority that are present in a meeting and things that are important to, to uh, facilitate getting decisions made, getting progress made. Yeah. Um, so that was always interesting. It's also very interesting. You go into most, um, uh, at JPL, most of the time we spent was in the big cities in Tokyo and Yokohama, but I would try to travel out of the big cities like on the weekend and go, and, and it's a, it is incredible the difference from downtown Tokyo in the Ginza district to uh, a little town like Kamakura, mm-hmm. and you know just I mean just it's, you know and going you know just anywhere outside the cities I mean it's just very very different very enjoyable to kind of meet people and talk to people and and the people there I, I always tell people. You can go any place you want because if you just stop and stand in front of a map, somebody will come up within a minute and ask you if you need help. Oh, that's really cool. So if you just, you just, you know, even though you can't speak, you know, and almost always it's somebody who comes up that speaks fluent English and will just ask you, "Do you need help?" That's cool. So I never had any any concerns or anything traveling around, uh, you know, because. People are always willing to help and willing to. to it's a, just a very um, safe and helpful country. So, going off of your work experience with within the country, did the culture of Japan and, and how they react within work did that affect the launch campaign in any way? Was it a positive effect? Was there a negative effect? Was it slower to get things done quicker? So I think it's, uh, so you just need to make sure that you follow the rules. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit slower because they're just thing. you know, you, there's, there's levels of approval and things that need to get done. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's, it's significantly different, but it, it just is, um, if you try to, if you try to skirt the rules or do things quickly or, just push things through, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, stuff just doesn't happen, and it just doesn't go right. You just need to you need to follow the process. You need to make sure that the right people are informed, that are there for the decision making process. You know that you know just the just ma- you know making sure that the process that is defined by them is followed very clearly. Yeah. And then things get done. Then they're then they're, then things are very efficient. I mean, yeah, the yeah, execution of the process as defined happens exactly as they say it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
if they say it takes 12 hours to get this form signed and so that you can go do this, get, move your hardware from this place to this place, it will be 12 hours to get that yeah, form yeah, signed. And, but if you try to go try just get your hardware moved without the form being signed, mm-hmm. it's not going to, it's not going to go well. So, okay. so I want to, I want to take a step back a little bit. Um, was the program successful? Did you guys launch from Japan and get it up in the air? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, it was launched. Uh, it was launched in uh, let's see here, 2014, 2014, 2015. It's been up um, uh, three, four, five, five years. Okay, so it's still going um, strong. So still going strong. Go so, out at night and see it fly over. Oh, that's so, cool. That's, that's really yeah. cool. So I've, I've actually interviewed a handful of people uh, within the past few weeks and a lot of well, I think almost all of them have all been to Russia for their launch campaigns and their programs um, and they, they say that their equipment, their launch vehicles, um, their assembly buildings are all, their transportation is all ancient, you know, it's from like the, the 60s and 70s. Was that the same in Japan or were they a lot more technologically advanced in their launch? Sure. Very modern. Everything they have was uh, so. There, most of their facilities have been developed in the last ten years. I would say mm-hmm. um, everything was uh, as advanced or newer than what we are used to using here. Okay. Uh, so very, very advanced facilities. Very, you know. But uh, the clean rooms were outstanding clean rooms, ESD, uh, cha- you know, ESD tables and things, uh, you know, very, very clean, very advanced uh, of equipment. Any of the monitoring equipment was the same quality you'd expect here. So mm-hmm. uh, we certainly didn't have any, any issues in, in those areas. Okay, so why why did we launch? Why did you guys launch from Japan? Obviously, it was a Japanese program, but why why couldn't you have launched from from the United States or from from uh, Russia, where it's you know? Yeah, so so, I, so that was a decision that NASA had made. Uh, is basically a cost share between the United States and Japan. So this was a joint program between the two of them. Mm-hmm. The Japanese built. Uh, a radar instrument that flew on the spacecraft. Ball built a microwave radiometer that flew on the spacecraft. So combined, those two are the ones that are producing the science. And Goddard uh, provided the spacecraft, and then the Japanese provided the launch vehicle. So it was just how, when they set up the international mission, how they just split the the responsibilities. So okay. it could have launched out of the U.S. It was just chosen to launch on a H-2 rocket out of Japan. Okay. Now, I'll finish up with one more question. I know that um, when we launch from different countries in the world, it's for specific reasons, and those relationships are affected by how successful uh, the launch campaign was or how you know workers within the company react with other people outside the country. But was your experience in Japan, was that – Obviously, it was a beneficial one, and the launch campaign was successful. Do you think that strengthened the relationships between within the aerospace sector between the two countries? So most of the interaction, uh, the most of the interaction between the Japanese and uh, 
and the U.S. people were at the NASA level. Okay. So as I said, Ball Ball was there directly supporting the NASA team. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, most of the interaction that uh, that happened between the Japanese and the U.S. was with the NASA team. So, but the the relationship that was there. Uh, you know, all of the technical meetings where uh, the Japanese were there, we were there. Those, you know, I think those were all very positive. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate results of the mission were extremely positive. I mean, the Japanese radar has produced uh, outstanding results. The U.S. microwave radiometer has produced outstanding results. And the, the mission has really exceeded its expectations significantly. Uh, which I think is an absolute strong support for that kind of an international yeah. program. I mean, I don't think either. I don't think NASA could afford to do that mission by itself. Yeah, yeah. So Japan sense. couldn't afford to do it by itself. Together, together they were able to do a mission that has been a true national asset mission by doing it together. So I think that's a good thing. Cool. Well, again, I really appreciate your time, David, and. Um... We'll go ahead and end the recording here. And that'll conclude it for this episode of Space Junk. Roger roll, Atlantis. Houston now controlling the flight of Atlantis. The space shuttle spreads its wings one final time for the start of a sentimental journey into history.